right. Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope that your week went well. Um, it is good to see so many of you here this morning. And my opening thoughts and things for us to ponder this morning revolve around thinking about how you take, how you receive, and how you give judgment. Judgment that might be coming your way. You know, we, we receive and give judgments every single day, whether those are vocalized, whether those are in facial expressions, whether those are likes or follows on social media. We deal with them often. You know, when we think about judgment, how important are those things? How important is it when someone judges you? Should we judge others? Kind of a, a vague and broad question. Can step into some gray areas depending on how you're defining these terms or what's meant by judging, who's doing the judging, um, who's saying what, when, what's going on in other circumstances. I think that in, impacts how we respond to those things. But you know, it's kind of funny and crazy to think how often we actually do judge situations and others. We make judgments every single day. Some have heavy ramifications. Others might be simple decisions that don't impact us or we might even not call that a judgment. But let me put this to the test. Maybe. <laughs> there it is. Two people up on the screen. As you look at these people, you may know one of them, you may know both of them. Would you want either of these people hanging out with your children? Why or why not? What are some of the, the judgments that you're making in your mind right now? The one on the left is Alice Cooper recently said this, most people I know, young people I know, think Jesus Christ is a swear word. People go out of their way to not believe in him. I think the Hollywood version of, oh, I do more good than bad and that kind of thing. And I go, Satan's got you right where he wants you because I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Those are the truest words ever spoken and how can you deny that? So as far as I'm concerned, my life is based on that now. Rock and roll allows me to be a rock and roller, but follow me. How do you take that quote? How do you judge that? The other person is Brian Welch, a guitarist in the band Korn. It's a 90s alternative rock band that does not have the cleanest music, we'll put it that way. But he said this, he said the most important lesson that we're supposed to be learning right now is how to be, how completely lost we are without God. If we don't learn this lesson, then our lives are going to have zero meaning. See, both of these men are rock stars and both of them had very strong encounters with Jesus through their drug-infused, alcohol-addicted lives. Um, I know for a fact that 
for a period of time, uh, Brian Welch left the band because of his convictions. And he kind of went to the extreme, to where it's almost annoying type of Christianity, because he saw that purpose, he saw that need for Christ to be in everybody's lives. And since then, he's kind of balanced that out a little bit. You know, both, both of their testimonies are very interesting to read, to see how wonderfully Jesus can grab people out of the darkness. But you know, through their lives, there have been plenty of thoughts, plenty of questions, plenty of judgments about the realness of their faith. People doubt things all the time. Mr. Welch went on to say that religion is when people try to act good because they're afraid to go to hell. A relationship with Jesus Christ is for people like me who've already been to hell. When I read that this week, it really stuck with me in terms of our own testimonies, understanding of sin and that separation from Christ. You know, have you ever received judgment concerning your faith? Anyone question your salvation? Anyone judge your beliefs or your convictions as being wrong? You know, when you get into that type of argument, into that type of conversation, do you find yourself attacking back? Do you find yourself questioning that person's salvation, wondering if they're a Christian at all? Do you wonder how you should respond? You know, for when we face judgments that say our faith is wrong, it can be difficult for us to handle at times. And how we respond, I think, can change based on the situations that we're in and who's doing the judging. But I think overall we need to be in deep prayer about those types of situations to discern rightly. And as we find ourselves as a church within the conversations with the district about titling and ordaining women as pastors, perhaps you've had similar thoughts run through your mind, different judgments about what's going on. As I was preparing this sermon, in the middle of having the different conversations, it was very difficult to focus on this passage that we're going to get into today. And I don't want to label or ascribe or assume different things. I don't want to put any of that kind of stuff on you as, well, you must be thinking this way. You know, because if you're anything like me, maybe you have different thoughts that when you're struggling through difficult topics and you're not knowing exactly what to do, you read a passage in the Bible and you think, aha, this is my vindication. This shows that I'm right. And you just feel good. You feel prideful because you're right. And that's what matters. It's happened a few times. But the problem is, Many times as we conflate things, many times as we tailor things to the way that we already think, we don't realize that the other side can do just that exact same thing. Because if we're just inserting our issue into the text just to show that I'm right and our problem is solved, it just adds to the argument even more. So when we conflate things, when we add things in and bring things in into the text, we have to be careful because it can be a very dangerous thing. I want to mention that at the outset of what we're talking about today, just so that we have that in our minds, that as we're going through this passage, not to just right away insert what we're going through, but instead, let's try to step back and see what Paul is saying and then try to apply it to our lives in different ways. So we'll try to give that a go this morning. This morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading in verses 16 through 23, 
Um, I will have it up on the screen today for us as well. But I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but let the substance, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, as we go to your word, just prepare our hearts and minds, Lord. As we enter into these topics, I just pray that you would allow your spirit to convict us where we need convicted and help us to grow closer to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Paul is continuing to speak about false teachers here. Again, it's kind of building off of the last few sections that we've talked about there in chapter two. Um, in a lot of ways, especially in that first verse, it's speaking to legalistic issues. It's speaking to issues that are found within Judaism. It's very Jewish in its nature, where the false teachers are encouraging the Colossians to give up their new Christian freedoms and put them under their control. It shows how this attitude of the Pharisee is still flourishing. Yes, it might just be a title, but through the teachings of Jesus, through the continued teachings of Paul, we see how this attitude of a Pharisee is still alive and well. Even today, we can have the same type of perspective when we think about control, when we think about legalism, and, and things of that nature. You know, these people, they wanted to limit the freedoms of the Colossians by prohibiting certain perfectly legitimate activities, such as eating certain foods, attending special meals, or not attending religious festivals. You know, there's five different items there in verse 16. All of these were a part of Judaism in some form or another, um, dealing with different observances, yearly things, monthly things, daily things, the day in the life type of thing. And, and here's where this conflation that we can struggle with comes into play. Because we can just insert just about anything into this section, right? We try to equate what's being said by when Paul says, don't let anyone judge you, and we just stop right there. Don't let anybody judge me. And that's where we leave it. And then we insert our issues that we might enjoy. Don't let anybody judge me about this area of life. You know, um, and as we do that, we try to insert ourselves into the text without looking at the issues that Paul is talking about. And, you know, we've heard, we've heard these types of things in churches today, right? Similar terms of judgment, you know, Christians, well, they, they don't drink. They don't get tattoos. They don't ride motorcycles. They don't wear jeans. They need to be pacifists. They need to read this version of the Bible, 
And the list goes on and on. You know, there's, there's an argument about judging within these topics. And anytime we see judging about certain freedoms or what you are free to do, I tend to go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. If you want to turn over there real quick, it, it's really a good chapter as a whole. If you want to spend some time with this um, concerning this issue or this area of our faith, I would spend some time in 1 Corinthians 8. Um, this whole chapter is about eating food sacrificed to idols and how Paul is saying that the people don't want to be a stumbling block to others. And I want to pick up in verse 9. And I'm going to read to the end. He says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat unless I make my brother, lest I make my brother stumble. So, you know, I, I read that in, in, in the understanding that, you know, as we're going through life, we don't want to try to make our brothers and sisters stumble. I'm thankful that almost all of you are meat eaters because I love to cook meat and love to eat meat, you know, and that way I don't have to, to cause people to stumble. You know, when we look out for our brothers and sisters, even if they might be judging us, we are to use discernment to not let them condemn us, to not help let them stumble, to not take things to heart, while at the same time standing up for our freedoms. But not doing so out of a sense of pride because I can do it, because I am free to do it, and boo on you if you don't believe that. We, we, we don't do it out of a sense of pride because as you go back to Colossians you look ahead of what we talked about last week. We don't do it out of a sense of pride because it is Christ that nailed those sins and he nailed the law to the cross. We don't have to achieve our own salvation. We don't have to be intimidated by those who are seeking to impose religious rules and regulations on us because it is Christ that forgives. And that's life-giving. That fills us with hope and that fills us with encouragement. You know, one commentator says, it's sad to say that there are many Christians who actually believe that some person, religious system, or discipline can add to their salvation. But Jesus is more than enough. Paul is imploring the people here to understand that since the debt written in the ordinances in the law has been abolished, since the demonic powers have been spoiled, since we are, have been led in triumph, allow no one to criticize your action on the ground that it's not in harmony with the standards of the law or cut you off from communion with the angels because you have nothing to do with the law or angels. At best, they are but a shadow. I really like that last line. They are but a shadow. This is described in several places in scripture. It's described in Hebrews. And it's described by Paul in other letters to where you have a shadow of the things that we do here whereas Christ is the real substance and we who are in him possess the real substance. You know, another commentator says that these things are a dim outline, a sketch 
of the object in contrast to the object itself. The offerings are reflections of the one genuine saving offering at the cross. The priesthood was a reflection or a foreshadowing of the priestly ministry of Jesus. The kings were a faint suggestion of the coming king and lord of lords. This new age then is not an extension of Judaism. Rather, Judaism was a mere shadow of the present age projected into the past because Christ is the substance. He is the realness, not all of these other things. You know, when Paul speaks about the freedoms that Christians have, you know, he, he speaks uh, in Galatians chapter five. No, I did miss that one. I thought so. Maybe that got deleted out of my transcript. But continuing on with that thought in 1 Corinthians 8, you can also go to 1 Corinthians 10 for this verse to where you understand that it's not prideful. You know, that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor. And then Paul says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You know, when certain observances, when certain rules and regulations are attached to the gospel, they might appear to give us a much safer or much superior Christianity because it's controlled. But we have to fight against that mentality just as Paul is here for the Colossians. We have to reject this supposed safety and superiority because we have the absolute completeness in the gospel message, in Christ, not in these other things. Our focus needs to be on him and not the shadows. It needs to be on the real thing. You know, when we attach smaller issues to salvation, to then say that someone is not saved because, and you fill in the blank, sorry to put you in the blank again. You know, when we do those types of things, we're trying to control salvation. If we're trying to control salvation, then we are in error. If we want to preach Christ alone, then it truly has to be Christ alone. Ephesians 2 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, the law was but a shadow, and Christ fulfills the law. Now again, as we go back and look into Colossians here, in our passage, we saw the, the issue with let no one pass judgment. Then you go down into verse 18, and it says, let no one disqualify you. Now again, we can have that same mentality with these terms. To disqualify is to judge someone as not worthy to receive the prize. It is to condemn. It's a present imperative. And it says, let no one disqualify you. And again, we can, we can insert our own issues oftentimes as we do. But Paul gives us some qualifiers here. He says, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. 
See, Paul, he's speaking against quite a few different false teachings and teachers within this verse. Um, different people groups. You know, you had the Gnostics who loved wisdom. They made a pretense out of wisdom. They loved the higher knowledge, and you needed that special knowledge in order to be saved. Um, they would insist that they were always right. They, there, was no, there was no humility in what they were teaching. They would puff themselves up rather than loving their neighbor. Vernon McGee says this. He says, and we have today in our church circles a great many folk who assume a pious superiority. They are what I call spiritual snobs. It has been my experience that these people generally are very ignorant of the Bible, intruding into those things that he hath not seen. That's a pretense. That's a putting on. That's acting like you have something that you don't really have. You know, the Christian walk at times can be very difficult to stay on the straight and narrow. You hear comments from all sides telling you about what's right, what's wrong, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. It can be difficult to navigate and to discern where the Lord is at times. But we continue to press in to that realness and not into the shadows. Another group of people that Paul would be speaking out against would be those that have a false sense of humility where their religion includes asceticism. Now again, with asceticism, it's uh, an extreme denial of the body, uh, of themselves, but it's done so in order to think that they can earn merit with God. It would involve bragging, it would involve puffing themselves up about knowledge and visions, but it was more extreme in terms of how they treated the body. They would whip themselves. They would go through extreme fasting. They would have extreme senses of guilt all of the time. It would torment them, and they would have to do punishing things or torment their own bodies as a way to work to make themselves better with God. We'll get into this a little bit deeper in a minute. Then you also had the mystics. The mystics would look to the angels for worship. They would think that the angels would intercede on their behalf. In verse 18 there, they would have the visions, they would have dreams, where they would think that those experiences were a lot more important than the walk that they had with Christ. Those experiences would, what they would elevate above that relationship with Christ. So it was dangerous as well. You know, and, and as you look um, at this brief introduction or this brief uh, view of the false teachings and these groups of people that he's addressing, we have to understand um, the key to understanding them is found in verse 19. When you look at verse 19, he is making an, uh, an argument from the opposite, right? He's saying that these false teachers are wrong because they're not holding on to the head. Therefore, the Colossians need to hold on to the head. Paul's pointing out that the people that are the false teachers have this loose relationship with Christ. Maybe their head's not screwed on tightly because Christ is the real one. Christ is the one that holds things together. He's the one that nourishes. He's the one that knits everything together, ligaments, tendons, so forth and so on. The last three verses of this chapter, Paul seems to focus more on the ascetics and the, legalistics, uh, the legalists with all of the, the do-nots. Right? These are rules that are added in. These are regulations that people are pushing. Again, I just counsel you to go back to 1 Corinthians 8 for some of that context. 
uh, of Paul's other writings on these subjects. But really what we wanna see here is Paul is calling out to these believers to be on guard. He is warning them about falling back into the regulations, about submitting themselves again to these rules and regulations, similar to like a dog who returns to his vomit. These regulations on food are the examples that are being used, but the issue is whether or not they're gonna go back to that thing. You know, and as I look at verse 23, I really, I really love verse 23 for me personally. Because for years, even today, you know, I struggle with the, the try harder, just stop it mentality when it comes to sin, when it comes to sanctification. Where yes, you need self-control, you need obedience, but those things require a submission and a surrender to Christ. Because, you know, the stop it mentality that we struggle with oftentimes is usually based on our own power, isn't it? I've got to do better. I, I have to be better at this. And we then get this sense of guilt when we fail, rather than understanding the surrender and the submission that has to come with that. Paul says, all of these ascetic practices may have the appearance of wisdom. It may seem right in the eyes of man, but it's essentially trying to add your own works to the gospel, and they have no effect on the desires of the flesh. Such a good statement that we need to sit with. It should be convicting for us that struggle with that type of mentality. Harry Ironside once said, one may shut himself up in a monastery in order to escape the world, only to find that he has taken the world in with him. See, asceticism does not touch the heart issues of sin. All of its practices are against the body. And, and taking things in literal and legalistic ways. You know, if we were to take things like the Sermon on the Mount literally, for instance, it's not going to help you combating sin. Right? Jesus is showing how it, this is a heart issue. You know, if I cut off my hand or if I gouge out my eyes because of lustful thoughts, it's not going to take away my lustful thoughts. Because sin is in the wickedness of our heart. Is so long as our heart is corrupt, any restraints that you put on the body are not going to have the desired effect. The right course of action that we have to take is to dedicate our body to, and everything that we have to the Lord for his ser service. You know, we see this in Romans 12, verses one and two, where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then, you know, you combine that with our passage in Colossians and verse 19 and holding fast to the head. Understanding that if we separate out of the realness and the substance of Christ and we go to these other things that are but shadows, we're deceiving ourselves. So in today's passage, we see multiple false teachings that Paul is warning the people against because they could fall prey to that. I mean, do you agree with that statement? 
Is that the purpose in why he is writing this? That they could be led astray, that they could follow down a path that's not according to the gospel message. That they were to take these teachings and these false teachers and these warnings from Paul very seriously. The principles within the, the warnings, the principles that he is speaking against remain for us today where you have similar things, you have false teachers of the higher types of knowledge, the Gnostics that were back then. For us today, maybe it's the sciences, where maybe we're combating against things like evolution or all of these wonderful biologists that are now saying that the, the believed thing for ages of there's only male and female, well, who can put a count and a number on those, right? For you to be truly smart, you have to believe that there's multiple genders, that there's all of these other things. That's wisdom. You know, you have all of these higher things that are combating and contradicting what the Bible says, and we have to be on guard for that. We have to be watching out for revelations that seem to be on par with the Bible, seem to con contradict different revelations that we might have. You know, these teachings are harmful to our walks, and we need to be on guard within them, within the church. It could be related to things like a system or a theology where you have to believe a certain way in order to be saved because we have that special knowledge. We have that right way of understanding these scriptures and you have to follow it, otherwise you are not saved. And with all of these things, like we said last week, you go back up to verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive. You know, I thought about um, different analogies and ways to understand being taken captive and, and understanding false teachings and things like that. You know, if you were to go into like the FBI or into law enforcement of some sort and you wanted to go into the counterfeiting area and you wanted to recognize counterfeit bills or falsities and stuff like that, you might think that you have to go out there and you have to study all of the, the false ways that are out there. And, and you do. You have, to, you have to do that to a degree to know what's out there. But when you study things like this, what they actually teach you is you have to study the real thing so closely, so minutely, that if you see anything that is false, you're gonna recognize it right away because you have spent so much time in the realness. That's the same way that we need to live our Christian lives, to where we are spending so much time in the truth that when we hear something false, it just sends up a red flag. And we know that it's false because we have spent the time in the word. We have spent that time in prayer. We have that relationship with Christ to know that something is counterfeit right away. And when we hear that, when we understand that, we know the truth and we will not be taken captive. Secondly, within this, we see legalism coming out in many forms, whether that's to the observances of the laws, the dates, the festivals, and things like that within our passage. You know, all of this, is, again, is being done with this idea that we can gain favor with God, that we have to be rule followers. Um, we're trying to gain that recognition for the good that we do. Any type of, of works mentality, when we attach that to salvation, is a wrong mentality. But it can easily slip into our hearts and minds. We can easily conflate and meld together sanctification and salvation. Well, we're, we're pairing together those two to say, well, if you're not doing these things, if I'm not seeing this fruit, well, then I guess you're just not saved. Rather than just like, hey, are you struggling in this period of time? Can I help come alongside of you? You know, so again, understanding how that is being uh, discerned and processed and communicated can change how the conversations go. 
You know, if we think of sanctification as keeping man-made rules, then we're going to be in error, where legalism is cropping up in many ways. And sometimes, I mean, we don't think that we're legalistic, but we can be in many different ways in our life. So we have to check our hearts often in that area, where that, that pharisaic type of attitude can come out. The third error of the false teaching that we see in this section is related to mysticism, where there's a mediator other than Christ um, between God and the people. And here in our references, this was the dreams, this was the angels that were seen in this passage. Uh, today, it could still be the angels, it could be praying to saints, it could be looking to our ancestors, the, those that have gone before us and are looking down up upon us, those types of mentalities where we could be caught up looking for the experience of faith. You know, maybe you're looking for that thrill. Maybe you're looking for those tingles. Maybe you're looking to speak in tongues. So that way you can prove your faith. You know, if you are approaching those things with that type of mentality, you could be in error. Because God, I mean, he uses many means to draw people to himself. But this is to draw us closer to him. This isn't a purpose to validate our faith. This isn't a purpose to puff ourselves up, to maybe make ourselves look more spiritual than others. And finally, today we looked at how people would abstain from things in very ascetic forms in order to try and win merit from God. Now in today's, this could be something like fasting, where we are trying to move God's hand uh, to do something. Now personally, I intermittently fast, Usually as there's some heavier things that are coming up in my life, and I need to, to lean in closer to God, um, so I, I fast. You know, it, it's not me saying, Lord, I'm not going to eat again until you do this. I'm not going to make it look like I am so pious or I am doing this because I need to, I need to do this. You know, it, it's more so just trying to get closer to the Lord. And, you know, they the Essenes especially and the other ascetics, they would have various other forms of torture or torment to their body. And it was a lot more prevalent, I think, 10, 15 years ago, but you saw a lot of cutting going on with our teens. It still goes on today, where teens are trying to release pain, where they have guilt in their life for different things, and they're trying to mutilate or torment their bodies because of this feeling of guilt this ascetic type of lifestyle to think that we can change or alter God's feelings of us, towards us, based on what we're doing to our bodies, how we're treating our bodies. And again, our response to that is to dedicate our bodies for his service. You know, when we conflate things to add in this punishment, we're thinking that our added punishment is gonna help suffice the payment for the guilt that we feel. And we're losing sight of that gospel message to say that Jesus had paid that guilt already. He would paid for that sin already. You know, we try, to, we try to add in our own things. You know, maybe with some of these examples, we can think about some other people. Maybe with some of these examples, we can think of other denominations that maybe have gone down certain paths that have led to different errors. I mean, it's, it's easy to judge others and how that they're doing things and how they're not doing it right, because it's not my way, right? So to help us not have a big head, we need to examine again what we have received. We need to pull the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eyes. Because in some ways, I think many times we have received a system of theology. We have received doctrines, 
and that's what we hang our hat on. For instance, Reformed theology has historically taught that a true Christian will never renounce his or her faith in Christ. Do you ever wonder why Paul writes so many warnings about falling away from Christ? In this epistle, he is writing to the Christians who are in danger of precisely doing just that. Does this perhaps prove or give credence to this teaching of the Reformed theology as being wrong, or at least not being a source of judgment as it so frequently has been used as? Now, I've always heard the argument or the saying that, oh, they must not have been a true believer. It's kind of a lazy argument in my eyes because in some sense, we're saying that we're the the judge, jury, and executioner. You know, nowhere in this letter does he make a distinction between a professing Christian and true Christians. People will tend to claim that he's just talking about professing Christians so as to keep their theology right. That's inserting things into the word of God. Rather, Paul is just appealing to the Colossians as Christians, as a whole, to watch out for this very real danger. Genuine Christians can be deceived for false teachings, from, by false teachings, even if that's about the work and person of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying and claiming that they lose their salvation because of that, but rather, people can be deceived. I leave all of the, the judging and all of that kind of stuff to God. That's in his hands. But I do take the warnings that I see very seriously especially as a person who tries his best to handle the word of God. Could churches be steered in wrong directions for a season? Yeah, I'm human. We're human. You look at the changes in the church throughout history. You look at some of the errors that the church has done. For a season, they can be steered in the wrong direction. And with all of this talk about false teaching, our hope again is in verse 19 to where we are to hold fast to Christ. We are to hold fast to him. You know, we don't, we don't hold fast to the beliefs of certain theologies or doctrines or systems to save us. I'm not saved because I am reformed. I'm not saved because I'm a part of a certain denomination. I'm not saved because I have a tattoo that says I'm saved. I'm not saved because I don't have a tattoo. I'm not saved because I read a certain version of the Bible. I'm not saved because I, God shows up in my dreams. I'm not saved because I'm a meat eater, because I'm not a meat eater. I am saved because Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the grave. That and that alone. That is the gospel message that I believe, that he has paid for my sins and nothing else. I think as Christians in America especially, we tend to have too much time on our hands when it comes to faith because we love to major in the minors and not living out the commands that God has for us, simple commands like loving others and sharing the gospel message. We have all of this time to conflate different ideas and argue over teachings and play the victim of who's right and who's wrong when souls are at stake. We want to try to control faith and salvation by being religious to keep ourselves comfortable rather than addressing our own shortcomings and errors. 
We want to complain about everyone else and what they're doing because it keeps the facts off of me. It keeps the focus off of me and how I'm not living out the commands of Jesus. Who have we shared the gospel with this past week? This past month? This past year? Who have we discipled in terms of another person instead of sharing condemning judgment against one another? While ignoring these simple commands, we make our lives comfortable. We make our faith comfortable. We spend a lot of time in the minors. As we have received him, so we are to walk in him. We have to understand the hell that he has rescued us from in terms of the eternal separation from God and the sin in our life and that he has given us life and he has given us life abundantly. Not to sit on our hands, but rather to be his hands and feet, to be his ministers, to be his ambassadors with the gospel message in everything that we say and everything that we do. That includes how we respond to those that might be condemning us. That includes how we might condemn or judge others. Standing firm for the truth while at the same time understanding um, and and discerning the words of God. I want to close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, This generation has forgotten that the gospel message does not clean up and shine the outside of a person. Rather, it bores into the very heart and soul of a person and radically changes that person from the inside forever. With this topic of judgment, oftentimes we can get very defensive and we can put up our walls immediately. With this topic of judgment, oftentimes I picture Christ on the cross, arms wide open, naked, bearing it all for the world. Could he have put walls up? Could he have defended himself? Could he have called the angels down to take him off that cross? Absolutely. But he gave himself for us. And here am I. I want to just protect what I have. Everything I have, he has given me. So I should be wanting to use that for his service and his purposes, advancing his will forward, advancing his kingdom and not my own. To him be the glory. Not to me. Let's pray. Father, as we just brush into some of these topics and and passages, Lord, I know that there's so many different things that can come to our hearts and minds. There are so many different ways that we can be thinking about these subjects and topics. And I just pray, Lord, that the Spirit would take what was said today and just... Allow us to process. Lord, allow us to spend some time in prayer. And Lord, that your conviction would be righteous and true. That you would continue to grow us into the image of your son. That we would surrender to that. That we would be submissive to that. Instead of the images that the world is pushing so the images that I am pushing. Lord, I pray that I can look more and more like you each and every day. We long for you to come for your church. 
And in the meantime, Lord, I just pray that you would help us uh, to hold fast to the head, to not be taken captive, but cling to you, Lord, in all areas of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.